Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the work you're doing at Oak Hill Bible Church in preparation for the next season this church has. We know you have already selected the man who will lead this church for the next period of time that you've appointed. We know you have him in mind. You've been preparing his heart. There's something for him here, Father, to to provide to this body, and there's something for him to learn as well. We pray for that man, Father. We pray for his heart and his family. If he has one, if he has a family, and if he has a wife or child with him, Father, we pray that those things... Those people would be prepared as well with him. We pray that his uh, mind would be devoted to the word and to this body as as he comes to it, whenever that happens. We pray for the elders, Father, this morning, that their hearts and minds would be directed toward getting to know these men in the right way, examining their hearts, doing their due diligence, and then embracing who you bring, Father, and supporting him as they should. We pray for the congregation. That they would be looking forward to this day, Father. You'd encourage in their hearts an expectation of something good, an excitement and a desire to care for this man as they have for me for so long. And that there'd be a great testimony coming out of this opportunity, Father, that men men and women would look back on these days and just marvel at all you do. And Father, one thing we do ask would never change is that your word would be proclaimed from this pulpit. That it would be proclaimed truly and boldly, and that it would be proclaimed in its full counsel, that nothing would be overlooked. Everything, Father, would be given its due time and consideration. And we pray, Lord, that especially would be true this morning, that even as we're looking past today for what's coming, we don't look past the Scriptures. We don't look past our own life and what we see in them. And that you'd speak to us this morning from what you taught through Ezekiel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. President Bill Clinton once remarked that running a country was a lot like running a cemetery. You've got a lot of people underneath you, but nobody's listening. <laughs> I, love that, I love that quote. And if you've ever been a leader of a larger organization or any real group of people, any group at all, you'll know that it's not uncommon for leaders to lament about that problem, about the fact that they can't motivate people to follow orders or they can't get them to, to follow their example, right? And sometimes that's true, but usually, despite all of that complaint, usually leaders are greatly influential in shaping the organizations that are beneath them, the thoughts and the behaviors of those who are under their charge. And sometimes they influence people for the better, and sometimes they influence them for the worse. And knowing this, a good leader will always take personal responsibility for the failures that happen under their watch, while at the same time giving credit to the people who work for them for anything good that might happen as well. That's what typically we expect of our leaders. For example, Harry Truman kept a sign. This is, I guess, the the theme today is presidential quotes. But Harry Truman kept a sign on his presidential desk that said, The buck stops here. You may have seen that picture. And it was a reference to the old saying, Passing the buck, which meant to pass off the blame to somebody else. And so Truman said he wasn't going to pass the blame off to anybody else for his own mistakes. The buck, or the blame, stays right where it deserves to be with him. But not all leaders are that courageous or responsible. Some will pass the buck quite regularly. And they're always looking for that next person to blame for their own failures in the organization. Leaders like that who are corrupt or incompetent or or simply unaccountable, they'll usually foster in their own organizations the very same attitudes for those who work underneath them. You'll find their people learning to blame other people for their faults, for their mistakes. They pass the buck also. And all of this philosophy I'm giving you doesn't just apply in business. It also applies in spiritual leadership. It applies in organizations like the church or spiritual communities of one kind or another. The kind of men who lead God's people can have a dramatic impact on the culture of the communities that 
look to them for spiritual leadership. They can affect the spiritual maturity. They can affect the godliness. So today in chapter 14 of Ezekiel, you're going to see this basic principle at work in the relationship between Jewish leaders of Israel, those of the eldership of Israel, and the people of Israel in exile. The tendency of the Jewish leaders, as I'm sure you're not surprised to hear, was to pass the buck. And therefore, so was the attitude of those underneath them. And this lies at the heart, this issue lies at the heart of the fourth excuse. You know, we've been studying now eight excuses that Israel had been using while in exile for why they did not have to listen or give attention to Ezekiel's prophecies or his warnings. Those eight excuses are found in chapters 12 through 19. Uh, Today we reach the fourth of those excuses in chapter 14. Israel's excuse basically was Harry Truman's philosophy. The people of Israel were saying this. They were saying the buck should stop with their leaders, like Truman said of himself. They were saying, if God's going to hold us accountable for our idolatry and bring the judgments that Ezekiel is predicting, well, he's only going to bring them against the leaders of Israel. He's not going to hold us accountable because we're just following the leader's example. We're just doing what they told us to do. So only the leaders, only the elders of Israel will be caught up in the judgment. So let's see how the Lord responds to this excuse. And I bet you can guess how he's going to respond. Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn your face away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from among my people. So you will know that I am the Lord. Well, let's set the scene first. This scene in chapter 14 is actually of the same time period that started all the way back in chapter 8. So for at least now the second time in this period, you have the elders over the people of Israel in exile coming to sit down and talk with Ezekiel. I would think that by this point, these men, these elders, must have thought Ezekiel was a first-class agitator for all that he's been saying, right? He's a real Debbie Downer. He has nothing to say but bad news. All he's telling everybody about is coming judgment and woe. And, you know, largely that's true. But if it's true, it's because Israel has done the kind of things that deserve the response that God is speaking to them about. Now, we've learned a little bit about these guys, these elders. We talked briefly about them in a prior chapter. They're they're men steering Israel into idolatry, steering Israel away from the law and away from the covenant. Remember, these guys were corrupt and godless. They set up abominations in the temple itself back in Jerusalem. We studied that at one point. And they've been telling Israel, these are your gods. Go worship them. And so they deceived generations of Israel. And that explains their present circumstances sitting in exile in Babylon. I mean, the irony of this scene is they're there now because of all of what they've already done. Never mind what God is saying is yet to come. 
So now they sit down before Ezekiel, probably to ask his counsel on something, or perhaps to just ask him to tone it down a bit. We don't know exactly what they're saying, because before the conversation gets going, it's not reported to us at all. It's the Lord who begins to speak to them through Ezekiel. And in verse 3, the Lord says, These men have set up idols in their hearts. And then he says, They put them right before their eyes to become stumbling blocks of iniquity. And then he asks Ezekiel, Should I receive counsel from men such as these? And that's a rhetorical question, obviously, because these men have nothing to offer God, or anyone else for that matter, on the subject of godliness. They're the worst possible examples. Take a closer look at that list I just read of how the Lord describes the corruption of these men. I want you to look at this because there's a pattern here, and it's not unique to them. First, he says, they began to worship an idol in their heart. And then he says, secondly, they would produce an image of that idol, and they would set that image in front of themselves so as to reflect what was in their heart. And then next, that physical object became a way of focusing their idolatrous gaze. God says it was right before their faces. You notice that? That means it filled their field of view. It obscured everything else, including the truth. And then as a result, he says, with their vision obscured, these men are stumbling over their idols, spiritually speaking. So that's the formula. That is the formula for all idolatry. For every time something leads us away from true worship and obedience to the Lord. It always begins in this way. We always begin here. It always begins with our fixing of our heart on someone or something that captivates us. Now that idol could be a false deity, some false belief system. Yes, that's the sort of classic way we think of it. But it can also be a physical pleasure. It could be a harmful relationship. It could be a greedy pursuit. Whatever form it takes in our heart, it eventually will have to set it before ourselves in some physical way. If we're really going to consummate that lust, take the next step, act on that desire, we need something to touch, feel, see, hear, whatever. So we'll create an image of that deity or that belief, a carved image. That's the classic view again. Or we'll satisfy that physical craving. Or we'll pursue that unhealthy relationship. Or we'll fill our shopping carts, virtual or otherwise, with all kinds of stuff. Right? And we set these things in front of our faces in the sense that we don't look at anything else. We can't see anything else, at least for a time. You know, you've probably run into people like this. I have this problem in my own life sometimes. Where you get obsessed about something for a short period of time in your life. You get absorbed in some new thing and you're sort of fascinated with that thing. And next thing you know, that's all you're thinking about for a while. And when we set these things in front of our faces, it obscures our vision. Again, we're speaking somewhat metaphorically, obviously. There's this tendency to put in our view, in our attention, something that so matters to us, our gaze is so fixed on that idol, that no matter where we go in life at that point, we're bound to trip, because we're not looking at the world properly anymore, to stumble, as he says, into sin. Like someone reading on iPhone while they're walking down the road. You know, somebody once told me there's a reason why the apple that Apple uses has a bite in it. Think about it. Idols are cruel masters. They demand more and more of your adoration. They're jealous. They can't tolerate it when you look away. They want to come back to your field of view. James describes this slippery slope in this fashion. In James 1.13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. 
And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He gave the same pattern. He just used different words. He says, God never sets any temptation before his own child, before the children of God. Because we're plenty capable of doing it ourselves. I mean, he doesn't even need to do it. Not that he could. James says, it begins when we're carried away by our own lust. That's a way of saying, it begins in our heart. When the lusts of our life tempt us into something. But then he moves forward. He says, eventually, those lusts have to be conceived. I love that terminology because it really is an evocative way of of representing what's in you coming out. It's as if you have to give birth to it, in a sense, into some physical form so that you can set it before your eyes. It's something about the nature of humanity and its fallen state. I feel something in here, but it's not sufficient to feel it. You know, I have a desire for a person who's not my wife, let's say, and then I can't just obsess about that person in my head. I need to go up and talk to her. I need to go up and invite her to dinner. You know, the kind of things that lead to things. And I can't just obsess about this object of desire in my life. I need to go look at it on the internet. I got to go research it. I got to go see it live in the store, touch it, feel it. I got to try it out and take it home. It's not enough. It just keeps going somewhere. James says, If you let it keep taking you where it wants to take you, it leads you into a sin. And ultimately, sin's product is death, physical or spiritual, depending on the individual. And he says, don't be deceived by this stuff. Let's not be deceived by this, because it is a deception. It's a self-deception. It's our ability to let ourselves think that what we're doing is good, though that consciousness is already saying, nah, it's not so good. It's a deception. And what do you think the solution is? If you have a pattern like this and you can see it so plainly, the benefit of it, the power of it, is that it becomes its own solution recipe. Just work back the pattern. In this case, the solution begins with eliminating the idol in its physical form so that it's no longer a fixed object in our gaze. It can no longer obscure our vision for what is good and what is right. So you break up the physical representation... To begin to break its spell on your heart. It's like the old saying, out of sight, out of mind. It just takes a little time. And that's why you see, by the way, time after time in the Old Testament, the Lord calling on the good kings of Israel when they have a good king to go around smashing all of the high places and all of the idols that were in those high places around Israel because the idea was you have these carved stone representations of a lust that was in the hearts of all the people of Israel. God took those distractions out of the way by having them smashed, proving, by the way, that they were powerless and worthless, and then in the process giving opportunity for all of those deceived hearts to return to him. So at least potentially that spell being broken, they could reorient. So these elders, with their idolatrous hearts, they sit down, And they begin to converse with Ezekiel. And and God gives them a message back through Ezekiel. But notice the message. Let's turn our attention to that for a second. Look what God says. Because I'll bet he doesn't say what you thought he might say. In verse 4, the Lord says to Ezekiel, Say this, that to any man in Israel who sets up an idol in his heart, that man's going to hear from me. The prophet Ezekiel will give such a man a response from the living God, the very God that they rejected, and the man who devoted himself to serving false gods, mute idols is going to hear something from the living God. Now, what do you think he's going to hear? The Lord says, he will give an answer to such a man concerning the matter that the man inquires about because of his idolatry. Now, think about what he just said. Notice at the end of that verse, the Lord says, in view of the multitude of his idols. 
What he's saying is this. He's talking about a Jewish guy, whoever it might be, some man, who has devoted his heart to idolatry. He set up an altar in his home, more than likely. He's got some carved image. Who knows what he's doing? He prays to that mute and deaf block of wood, or rock, thinking that that thing is going to talk to him and hear from him, and there's going to be a conversation. His heart's captivated by all of that lust. His gaze is fixed on this false thing. And then at some point, because he's not hearing what he needs to hear, he decides, well, maybe the prophet Ezekiel could help me on this one. And so then he goes to God. Yet when he does that, the man is going to hear from the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to speak to him. I'm going to give him an answer to the question he brings me. And why would the Lord condescend to do that? Why would the Lord give him even a minute's attention? Why doesn't the Lord just zap him with lightning? He says, so that I might break the spell of the idols on this man's heart. Notice in verse 5. The Lord says, so that I could lay hold of the hearts of those in Israel who are estranged by these idols. Didn't expect to see that coming, did you? I think if you didn't, it's because we get caught sometimes in the false view that comes out of the Old Testament in some people's minds, that there's an Old Testament God and there's a New Testament God. The Old Testament God, man, he was a tough dude. Vengeful, wrathful, you know, no grace, no mercy, no forgiveness. New Testament God, turn the other cheek. You know, be nice to your enemies and so on. Friends, you and I know that's not true, right? It's the same God. He didn't change. Which means we're not seeing the grace that's there in the Old Testament, and we're not attending enough to the judgment and the responsibility that comes with faith in the new sometimes. In this case, it's the problem of not seeing mercy. Here it is. God is acting in mercy and in grace to His own people. A God who has been rejected by His covenant people, set aside for the sake of wood and stone ignored, blasphemed, and he still allows himself to be sought. He still allows himself to be heard. He still has a hope to, do, to set free their hearts. So don't let anyone tell you that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. This is Old Testament grace. It's the same grace the church receives in the New Covenant. And he gives you that grace every day. We've all got these, these idols in our heart. You knew I was going to say that sooner or later, right? Perhaps we've even taken that next step, though. Maybe we've gone from what's in here, and some of us have set these things up in front of our faces, so to speak. We've made it that stumbling block. And then perhaps for some of us on a given day, we begin to experience the weight of the sin that comes from that stumbling block. We feel those consequences, the pain, the suffering, the loss. It all starts to pile up. Maybe at that point we start to think, I should ask the Lord for a little advice under these circumstances. And when that day comes, you know what you're going to find? Exactly the same thing they found. You're going to find the Lord who will answer you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He will be there for you. Come back to Him. Seek His mercy. Ask for rescue. And He'll speak to you. Because He wants to lay hold of your estranged heart every bit as much as He wanted to lay hold of Israel's estranged heart. As He does that, you also know He's going to tell you something. And look what He says to Israel in verse 6. He said, Repent. Turn away from your idols. Turn your face away from those abominations. Don't look at that thing anymore. But here again, notice the order of the pattern. He says, first, what? You know, I think if we were teaching each other on this without the guidance of Scripture, we might be tempted to say, you know, you just got to stop lusting for that woman. It doesn't work that way. I mean, it normally doesn't work that way. If somebody's caught in an inappropriate relationship, to use that example for the moment, it started with lust, but how did it move? It moved from lust to a physical object of sorts, in this case the person themselves, and an interaction with that person so that it became a fixed object in their view. And then sin was conceived out of that. 
The first thing you tell someone is, break off that relationship. Back that up. Get that person out of your view. Take them out of your contacts. Don't answer the phone. Don't go to their house. Don't be near them anymore. Break the the fixation you have, like the tractor beam on your eyes, that you just can't stop where you're going. So if it's a bad relationship, cut it off. If it's a greedy desire, cut up the credit card. If it's a fear or an anxiety or an addiction or an obsession, then change your environment. Set up some fences of protection. Get godly counsel. Move. Change your life. Do what's needed to break that chain. Because until you do it, it's all you can see. Do whatever you have to do to get clear vision back to turn your attention away from what has captured you. Now, once the idol has been smashed and you get a little daylight, so to speak, you're still going to have this in your heart. You're still going to have that sensation. It's not like you're suddenly cured. But you now have an opportunity. You should take advantage of that opportunity to run back to the Lord in repentance. Now that you're clear enough for a moment that you can see Him. Seek Him again in His Word. Seek Him again in the company of godly people, in the comfort of prayer. Invest all that energy that you were squandering on the idol into pursuing the disciplines of the faith. And then watch what kind of spiritual growth comes out of that pursuit. And I'm not naive. I don't think anybody in here would expect that that plan suddenly reverses the lust of a human heart overnight. That's not the expectation here either. The point is, there are some measurable steps you can take immediately that have meaningful impact on your success rate. And then there's a long-term strategy that disciplines the heart. And God does the work on that side. He's just asking for the repentance. Watch Him work. Watch Him... Purge those unhealthy desires. Watch him evict that idol from the home it's made in your heart. It's like a seesaw. As you invest in the strengthening of your spirit, the attraction of those idols just begins to fade. And if you think that sounds too easy, well then, try it. I'm serious. Test to see if the word of God is true. Weaker people than you have broken free with the Lord's help. But it starts with smashing that idol removing what is in front of you that you can't see past. So let's look back at verse 4 for a moment. Notice the Lord didn't distinguish between the elders and the rest of Israel as He gave this warning. In fact, the Lord says quite specifically, this is going to apply, this offer applies to any man of Israel. The leaders were at the forefront of leading people into idolatry, yes. But He says, nevertheless, I'm going to treat everybody equally in this regard. Both the elder and the ordinary Jew is available, can, can have this repentant or can have this mercy if they repent. But they have to come to me. Now this is our introduction into the fourth excuse. Because the people were saying, as I mentioned earlier, only the leaders have to worry about what God is going to do. We don't have to worry about it. Why were the people so sure of that, do you think? Why do you think the people of Israel would ever assume that God would only judge the leaders? It goes back to the history of Jerusalem's capture by the Babylonians. I've given you this history before. Let me just run through it real quickly again for you. You have Babylon's first attack against Jerusalem in 605 B.C. When that happened... They took the king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar set up in his place another king. And they took some of the nobles and leaders of the nation of Israel, and they made them captives, and they took them back to Israel to try to subdue the leadership of Israel. And then a few years later, that new king also rebelled. So Nebuchadnezzar sent his army down a second time, and they did the same thing a second time. Took that king out, deposed him, put a third king in place, took a few more of the leaders and nobles and priests, and cleared out more of Israel as a result. As this history happened, the people of Israel began to conclude, well, it looks like God's only angry at our leaders. Every time he attacks, he goes after the top. 
It became an excuse for them to dismiss the warnings of the prophet and to live without concern for God's judgment. But just like the other excuses we've looked at in this book so far, they always conveniently overlook the facts. And in this case, the facts are that, yes, the leadership were a focus of God's in that judgment, but they weren't the only ones. Many regular Jews were caught up in the slavery. Many of them died in the attack. It was not as though the rest of the city just went on, you know, hunky-dory. And soon enough, the rest were about to go into exile, according to what the prophet was saying. So in verses 7 and 8, the Lord says that anyone in the city who does not repent of idolatry is going to experience the next coming judgment. And in verse 7, he says it doesn't just apply to anyone in the house of Israel. It applies to elders, common men, even the immigrants. You could be a Gentile living in Israel, and this still applies. So God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to dealing justly with those who are engaged in idolatry. So when such a person comes before the prophet, he says, but if they have failed to repent, they are going to receive a word of judgment from the Lord. And specifically, he says, they will receive God's answer from God personally. Notice he says, in my own person. And then in verse 8, he says, I will make an example of such a person. I will make them a proverb, which is a way of saying I'm going to make an example of them. And he says, they're going to be killed. They're going to be cut off so that God's people will truly know I and I alone am the Lord. Your mute, deaf, stone and wood idols didn't save you. That's the point. Now, if you look throughout those two verses, 7 and 8, you just notice something if you're looking. Look at how the Lord stresses over and over again the personal responsibility of each individual for the sin they have before the Lord. He's emphasizing the false nature of that excuse. They cannot rest on the assumption that God is only going to judge their leaders. Each person's sin before the Lord is going to result in each person's judgment, rightly so. Ignorance will not be an excuse either. Look what he says in verse 9. But if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear the punishment of their iniquity. As the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be. In order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions, thus they will be my people, and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. Here's what he's saying. When these sinful elders sit before the prophet seeking his counsel, but do so without repenting of their idolatry, they're going to hear from the prophet. But the Lord says, the leaders and all Israel need to understand that what they hear from that prophet is coming from the Lord. It was the leaders who asked the prophet to speak. It was the leaders who had the question. They need to understand what they're hearing back is not something Ezekiel's doing in response to them. It's something God is doing to speak to them. If you want an example of this, it reminds me of what God did through Balaam. You remember Numbers 22, the prophet Balaam. The prophet, we know, was a man who was greedy. He was deceived by a desire for money. And so he hired himself out to the king of Israel's enemies, the Moabites. And that king said, oh, you're a prophet of Israel. What you speak comes true. So I want you to go to my enemy Israel, and I want you to curse them for me. And the Lord permitted the prophet to go to the camp of Israel. But here's what he told him. Numbers 22.20 God came to Balaam at night and said, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. So when Balaam went before the camp of Israel to pronounce the curse that the king wanted him to pronounce, the only thing that came out of his mouth were blessings for the people of Israel. It didn't matter what he had come to say. It only mattered what God wanted him to say. And the Lord made sure his mouth spoke properly. And that's what I think he's saying to Israel here again now. It says, he's saying, it doesn't matter what you came to hear from Ezekiel. It doesn't matter what you think. 
When he speaks, you're hearing from me. You're on notice, in other words. So in the end, you've heard from me. You can't blame your leaders. You can't blame the messenger. You can't say you didn't hear the truth. You heard it straight from me, and I'm going to hold you accountable to it. So in fact, the Lord says in verse 10, if the prophet should happen to speak of his own initiative, that is to speak falsely, well then he too will fall under judgment. And if a prophet were to sin in that way, he too would receive judgment just as the people do. So what he's saying is, look, I'm not holding anyone to a special standard or to some excuse. Everybody's going to be held accountable. And he's doing it all, he says in verse 11, to ensure that the people of Israel no longer stray or defile themselves. Remember I said in an earlier lesson, the exiles of Judah who went into Babylon, when they finally came back after 70 years of exile and returned to the land of Israel, there was never again a systematic practice of idolatry in Israel after this time. Never has been in the whole history of Israel, even until today. Even after the people returned, they never again did this. They've remained steadfast in their following of the law, that is, among the Jews who are inclined to be observant of the law. Certainly some today have no interest in that. But in terms of how they practice religion within the nation, they have steadfastly refused to worship idols as a rule, apart from one person here or there. The memory of this episode of the exile has just stuck in their collective minds of Israel, and they've continued to say, we're never going to let this happen again to our people. In fact, you want a little nugget of history here, the practice you see in Judaism today, where we have rabbinical law that expands the rules of life for Jews well beyond what the Bible requires, you know what I'm talking about, they refer to those as fences sometimes. You can't you know, boil a kid in the milk of its mother. Well, you can't have a cheeseburger now in Israel because they've said, that's potentially leading you to doing the thing God said not, so we're just going to make these extra rules. Well, of course, that means there's literally thousands and thousands of rules of Judaism that no longer have any rational relationship to Scripture, but they're counted as equal to Scripture in the mind of observant Jews. Where did all that start? It started not long after the exiles returned. And why did it start? Here was their motivation. And it's actually a reasonable motivation, even if the result wasn't reasonable. They said, we never want to go to exile again. We never want to make a mistake again that leads us into exile. We don't want to take any chance at all that we might fall into idolatry. We don't want to disobey the law. We don't want to forget these rules. And we're going to make so sure that we never see this happen again that we're going to set up a whole bunch of other rules that if you follow those rules, we know you have no chance of getting close to the real rules. Because they understood that the nation as a whole had to remain obedient. It didn't matter what they did personally, remember? Exile took everybody. Ezekiel, he's an upright guy. Daniel, pretty cool dude. They're both in exile. So the nation said, the leaders said, we can't afford to have anybody making any of these mistakes. Not just the good people. We can't let anybody do it. So they made a whole nation of rules, a whole culture of rules that we still see today. Clearly they've gone well beyond what was reasonable, but its source, its motivation in the beginning was to never see this happen again. That's what God's saying. I'm going to do something, I'm about to do something that will make sure this will never happen again. You know, Christians often quote Romans 8.28, don't we? And we know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. It's a beautiful verse. It's one that's given hope to countless believers living over the centuries, right? That when you're in difficult circumstances, trying times, you come to this verse and you say, okay, somehow this is something God is working to good. And that's absolutely true. Things are caused to work together for good. Things that are not good 
can be harnessed to produce a good outcome. It means that God brings bad things sometimes, so that though they're bad from our point of view, God is seeing them as necessary to produce some good outcome. That's the thing we have to remember when we quote Romans 8.28. It says he turns things to good. That means they start bad. It doesn't mean good things are always coming. So sometimes the best possible way God can achieve a good outcome that he views as necessary is to take us through something difficult. I think I've come to believe it's not just sometimes. I think it may actually be most times. Because when things are going really well, our motivation for change is really low. Our recognition of, of a need, of a problem that has to be addressed, that's not there. We're too busy enjoying the good times. The Lord's desire in Israel's case was to break the stronghold of idolatry in the hearts of these people so that in the end it would cause them to come back to himself in such a zealous way that he wouldn't have to do this a second time. Not in the way he did here. He says, they will be my people and I shall be their God. And friends, if that goal required that Israel would endure a few generations of captivity in Babylon, then so be it. The outcome was worth it. He worked through terrible circumstances for the sake of his people. And if we're spiritually mature, we'll come to understand that the very same thing happens in our lives, probably more often than we're even willing to acknowledge, more often than we recognize. Even small things. I mean, you get pulled over by a cop for speeding, you need to remember Romans 8.28. Right? That's the moment you say to yourself, Lord, you took me through this because you needed to remind me of something that I needed to remember. Principally, that I should obey the law. I mean, that's a small example, but we all know the bigger ones, the things that come along in seasons of our life, they're tough. When you feel that sense of your life's going from bad to worse, you need to understand that may be that God has got something so meaningful, so big and impactful for eternity's sake, that He has to accomplish. There's just no other way to get it done. There's no other way to get it done. You have to trust Him in that. That if you had asked for it another way, it could not have been done another way. He's determined the good He wants to do, and He determines the best way to achieve it, and that means you have to trust Him, and be patient, and seek an understanding in the midst of it, and cry out to Him for relief, and do all the things we naturally do. But just know, He hasn't forgotten you. And when the dust settles and those good things come, maybe they'll be in eternity, maybe they'll be even now. Well, then you'll understand. Because sometimes the best lessons are only learned the hard way. And for me, I think it's usually most of the time they're only learned the hard way. All right, let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, teach us lessons that we need to know. Teach them as quickly as you can. So that the pain and the difficulty that comes sometimes with those lessons won't crush us. Help us see the good in what you're doing, Father, so we can praise you for it as we should. Bring others alongside us, Father, when we need that support so that we aren't in despair. Thank you, Father, for your mercy that when we repent and return, you hear us and you respond. We deserve none of it, Father, and yet by an act of your mercy and grace, we are so thankful for it. And Father, in this future of this little church and of those who are here with us today and maybe will come tomorrow, Father, I pray that this season of transition would produce good outcomes as well and that the church would flourish and that it would serve you well in the years to come, that it would please you and that those who are assembled here, Father, and and those who may join them later will will look for opportunities, Father, to praise you in all the things they endure in the process of a transition and to celebrate all the good things that come from it when they see them. 
and that it would be a lesson learned for everyone. And I do pray as well, Father, for any in here who are in the midst of a bad season, perhaps one they haven't shared with others even. I pray, Father, that you would walk them through that process gently, putting aside those things that capture their vision and obscure the truth, teaching their hearts out of your word and by the counsel of others that there can be a, a better way than to, than to indulge in the lusts of our flesh. And that those things, Father, would give way quickly but gently so that we may walk more truly with you. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.